Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. So if you've been here any of the last eight weeks, you know that we've been teaching on something and really we've been focused on 1 John. Now, before I get to kind of the title of today, the reason we've been focusing on 1 John is I think it's because of the historical um, context of where this book and why this book was written. Many of us who read the Bible, we go through chapter by chapter, book by book, and we sometimes fail to understand timelines and time frames associated with these books. So John, who's the disciple who's Jesus loved, he's the one that everybody was jealous because he was so close to Jesus. I mean, he is an incredible incredible example of resiliency and relationship. And what you actually see is that as you assess John's life is he has lived probably the broadest spectrum of faith that you could ever imagine. He's literally walked with Jesus, seen the foundations of Jesus's ministry, has, was also there witnessing Jesus's death at the foot of the cross with his mother. He's one of the first at the tomb after Jesus is raised. And then from there, upon Jesus' ascension, is one of the foundational leaders of the church expansion that we are still in today. Not only does he see this level of ascension, resurrection, Jesus' ministry, but he also is baptized into the persecution of seeing most, if not all, of his apostle and disciple friends martyred on behalf of their faith. Not only has he seen martyrdom, but he has been attempted to be killed for his faith, exiled onto the island of Patmos where he writes different letters. And over the course of time, he has seen the full spectrum, persecution, expansion, the rise, the fall, the are we going to make it, the Jesus is physically here, to, he's not here anymore. And not only that, First John is written... Many historians believe in A.D. 85 to A.D. 95, this would be 30 years after the Apostle Paul's death. Many of us know that the New Testament epistles are compromised of a lot of Pauline writings, but many of us forget that John is still here. That even after Paul's death, the man who literally walked with Jesus and had proximation with Jesus unlike any man ever had was still alive. And he writes these letters. Towards the end of his life, he's writing things that as he's seen the church expand... And he's seen it contract and he's seen it contort. He's writing almost from a corrective measure, but also a pointing back to what Jesus had intended for all of his followers to live as. First John, in my opinion, is one of, outside of the Gospels that narrate Jesus' life, I believe is one of the most important books in all of Scripture. So with that, I want to talk about today, First John part 8. What do you know? And how do you know it? What do you know and how do you know it? Each of the last eight weeks, we've just went verse by verse, chapter by chapter, working through 1 John. And today specifically, we are closing it down. 1 John 5, 13 through verse 21. 1 John 5, 13 through verse 21. And really what I want to start with today is this, is I want to challenge those with defeated mindsets today. 
In my opinion, I think a lot of theme of John is him reintroducing the fact that people are conquerors. They're victorious. They have a light that should shine. They should, in following Jesus, they can overcome the world. These are common themes in his, in his world. But I think a lot of us, when we really start to assess our lives, do we actually believe that we can be victorious? That we can have victory in areas that we have felt defeated by day after day, month after month, year after year. Do we believe that we've been created with a victorious power that can help us to overcome? Do we believe that victory is a part of our profession of faith that we will overcome the world as Jesus resurrected, overcame the cross? Defeated mindsets. What's funny to me about the defeated mindsets is this, is I believe that, you know, you hear a lot of churches talk about the devil and his works and Satan and his works and all those, but really the bare basic definition of, of the, the devil and Satan in scripture is the deceiver, which I think is, is profoundly important. As we've tried to label all the attacks of the enemy and spiritual things, what if what the enemy was wanting was just to change and deceive truth? See, defeated mindsets is professing faith in a victorious God while living a defeated existence, not thinking that anything was created for you other than, yeah, I follow God and hope it all works out fine. See, the deceiver in Scripture is something that I think is profound because a lot of the times what we don't realize is the enemy's just trying to get us to deceive us a little bit and slowly slip us into a life of passivity, a life of just existing A life of following God, but devoid of any power or purpose or presence. So today I want to talk about that. Challenging the defeated mindsets. Um, I am somewhat of a unicorn. In I was homeschooled. I went to private school and I went to public school. Some of you guys are like, that was a weird segue. (laughs) Welcome to Fix (laughs) 8. If you've been here, you know there's some weird segues. Um, Private, public, and homeschool. Now, if anybody in here is, was homeschooled, I mean, and you liked it, <laughs> I, don't, there's, I can't hide this. I don't know. Homeschool was tough for me, okay? If you couldn't tell, I'm a social uh, 17 butterflies. Um, but uh, I, I was homeschooled. Like I said, I went to private when I first um, moved to Michigan with my family from Southern California. But the private school I went to was pretty much the equivalent of a one-room schoolhouse in Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> Um, but, and then my parents realized, they're like, wow, my, my kid is literally being schooled like, uh, like he's being raised under a rock with their head in the sand. Maybe we'll just switch to the other side and send him to public school. And so I went to public school. And as I went through public school, then my parents were like, okay, well, now my kid needs kicked in the head. So let's homeschool him. Uh, and so I was homeschooled for two years. And then my mom was like, okay, now I need kicked in the head. Let's send him back. No. <laughs> oh, but I'm going to tell you this. I did homeschool online, and when I did it online, it was, it was, it was brutal. And one thing I, I, I really enjoyed, though, that would pass the time is essentially homeschool was so boring that I just picked up. I had played sports my whole life, but I just started playing video games. And the video game of choice for me was Madden. Now, I don't play video games anymore because I'm in my 30s. Some guys are like, I'm attacked. I'm attacked. I golf. It's the same thing. Anyway. um, But I remember. 
remember I, I went and I remember one week I saw that there was a Madden tournament and I was really good at Madden. There was a Madden tournament and the winner got the new Madden and got $250. Now this is over 20 years ago or probably right around 20 years ago now. And I remember I'm like, okay, I got to go off for this. So I call my mom and I'm like, hey mom, I got to, I want to join this Madden tournament. And I go and what's hilarious is there's a guy from our church at the Madden tournament who's a full grown guy who I knew personally in his family. His name is Orlando. And we were both in the Madden tournament with like 65 guys. And I remember me and Orlando in the very beginning, we got there early and to warm up, we just played each other and I was killing him, killing him. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, man, I hope I get Orlando in the first round because I'm going to destroy this guy. He's not even that good. I am good at Madden. So what do you think happened? Literally throughout the day, I advanced, advanced, advanced into the points where I actually made the finals. Guess who I was playing against? Orlando. You better believe I walked up to the sticks, grabbed that controller. I was like, I'm already thinking about like, dang, I don't got to spend my lawnmower money on the new Madden. I got this in the bag. I was losing 37 to zero at halftime. And what I realized is this, is that Orlando had lost on purpose to learn how to beat me. And I was like, I was like, man, you're playing like some interstellar type stuff right now. And it's funny because my parents, we laugh about it to this day that the guy from church would be the one who like I play him before he learns all my moves and then just destroys me. But I want to encourage you today to realize this through the lens of the defeats that you face that maybe you haven't been defeated. You've just learned how to win better tomorrow. And for a lot of us, what we've done is we've taken defeat and used it to define us instead of taking defeat and said, okay, well, this is how I'm going to win from what I've lost. And as Christians today, the deception that the enemy tries to get you to believe is that you lost and you'll always lose. Instead of you've lost and now learn how to not lose the same way. You want to know the deepest level of defeat is when you lose the same way over and over and over to the point that you never believe you can win again. See, that's the power of revelation in pursuing God and a lifestyle and a routine and a pattern of disciplined lifestyle is that when you do lose, you learn not to lose the same way again. That's the framework I want us to start with as we talk about 1 John. Now let's read the Bible. 1 John 5, 13 to 21, it says this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we should have before him. I love wording here because he's, you can tell he's trying to spur on his followers to deeper devotion. If we ask anything... To his will, he hears us. Now, some of us are like, okay, I got a bone to pick with that one. And I'm like, well, I got a bone to pick with you. Have you asked according to will or your will? Because I think a lot of the times what we don't realize is we're asking for things thinking it's his will, but we don't have a depth in the spirit and knowledge of scripture to discern our will and his. We've paired them together, smashed them all, put them in the blender and and been like, God, it's your will. He's like, no, I don't want seven jets for you. (laughs) Like my whole life, I'm like, God, I want to play for the Packers, Father. 
She's like, you're 140 pounds, Micah. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Oh, happy to see you guys are laughing at my jokes today. Last week was weak. Um, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. This is an interesting statement. Okay, if we know that he hears us, we know that we know the request he's asking. It's It's almost saying, like, if you're praying to him, you filtered your will through his so that when you ask of him, you're literally asking of something that he already freely wants to give. As your character has filtered out the vain pursuit and the fleshly agenda, the, the cultural things that just creep in and suffocate the spirit, that you have filtered those out so the requests that you are making are refined in the purposes of God. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, this is a very, I'm going to break this down quickly, um, as quick as I can, because the back end is what we're really going to talk about today. But for a lot of us, right, the sin leading to death debate, right? Because some of us, we read this and we're like, wait a second, there's a sin that leads to death. Can I know that right now? And what's interesting is actually the context of this comes from Matthew 12, 31 through verse 32. In this, Jesus has cast out a spirit that is both blind, mute, and dumb. Now, what that means is is many believe there are messianic miracles, but what's interesting about these particular messianic miracles is when something that you couldn't communicate with that couldn't respond to you. They believed you had power over spirits, but to have power over something that you didn't even know what it was and to pull it out and see a miracle was absolutely the utmost messianic type miracle. And what happens is, is to counteract what Jesus does, the Pharisees look at him and they say, well, he has power over demons because he's the prince of demons. And they actually say he's of Belzebub. And what's interesting about this passage is essentially it's people, the Pharisees, who are mad that Jesus did something and are trying to rationalize how he did it, that he isn't God. And what I want to talk about, just like I said, for two seconds, is the context is this was spoken to religious leaders in Matthew 12 who claim to know God and yet call him the devil. Even in the midst of miracles and things being done for them right in front of their eyes. So really what we're seeing is is, it's a blasphemy of the spirit. But really what a blasphemy of the spirit is, is God doing something right in front of your eyes. And you saying, no, he's the devil. It's the devil. And not only that, there's a deeper layer to it. And I want to actually say it. The sin that kills you. It's the sin you have stopped feeling after you have been enlightened to its detriment effects. What do, you, what do I mean by this? When the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, oh, he's the prince of demons. That's why he can cast it out. It's because they literally had stopped even feeling the fact that what they could be saying was wrong. They were so in tune with they were right that literally they didn't know they were pronouncing curse over themselves. 
Actually, St. Martin says this, resistance in our heart against the truth of God, even after one has been touched and cannot plead ignorance to, is rather a sin of bitterness, hard-hearted resistance, and complete and utter rebellion to him. I actually stole from St. Augustine, the sin that kills you is the sin that you can't feel anymore. So what's blasphemy in the spirit? What's the sin that kills you? It's the sin that you don't actually think is sin anymore, even though you've been enlightened to it, but you've just lived it so much that it's not that big of a deal anymore. And you don't realize that it's killing you because some of us, we're, we think that a sin that kills you is just sending you to, it's just sending you to hell, right? But no, there is sin that can kill your marriage. There is sin that can kill your mental state. There is sin that can kill your peace and your contentment. There is sin that kills your purpose. What am I trying to say? Is the sin that kills is the sin that you're okay committing because you don't even feel it's wrong anymore. You've done it so much. What am I trying to say to you today is John is challenging people. Hey, you have been sinning in areas that you don't think are a big deal, but they are actually killing the purpose and the power within you. And as long as you are okay, are okay with no purpose and no power, then you won't know the person. Let's keep reading. That's the summary of that. We're not going to talk about it again because it's a whole nother sermon and I just don't have time today. Sorry. Verse 18 And this is what I'm talking about. In closing, John gives three we know statements as a rallying and center point of faith for people to come around. It says this, we know that no one who is born of God sins, which makes sense based off the context of what I just read, right? Or just broke down. But he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I'm going to really break this one down later. Verse 20, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is true God. And eternal life. I love how First John closes. This powerful like almost just knife into people. Little children guard yourselves from idols. Isn't it interesting? It's like okay well, where did idols come into this? Like okay we know we shouldn't be sinning. We know we shouldn't be doing anything bad. We know that God is truth. Don't practice idolatry. <laughs> it's like that. it just doesn't really fit unless it does and we haven't actually explored what the fit is and we're going to today. So today, what I want to do is I want to talk about what we should know, but maybe need reminded. What should we know, but we maybe need reminded specifically about this passage. The first one is this, and if you know me, I do extremely long points and they leave them on the screen forever, which Ethan, I love you so much. So the first point is this. I'm going to read it. It says this. If we are born of God, then we should not be actively, deliberately, habitually sinning. As we live under his rule and reign, 
Idolatry in this form is knowing what God has said, but choosing to worship a false god by practicing an action that is disobedient to the life that's been purchased. Idols are not just carved images. They are conflicted hearts torn between two realities. Lordship is shown not by what you know, but rather what you won't allow yourself to do anymore after you've encountered Christ's love. Lordship is not about what you know. It's about what you won't allow yourself to do anymore that you've met Jesus. See, some of us right now, we're sitting in our spots and we're feeling conviction because we know we know God, but we also know that we've allowed ourselves to do things that are contrary to the gospel and the word that has been written. This comes from 1 John 5, 18. You don't have to throw it up there, Ethan. Just leave the point up. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Those born of God do not sin, and they keep him. What does that mean? You know, a few years ago, we... uh, this is a pretty incriminating story, but it's fine. A few years ago, I, I was a youth pastor at the time at our church, and we were doing something um, in the summer, which I, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was something on the beach. And I remember we had an idea, and the idea was to build a ramp. And there was a, a five-foot drop going into the lake. And if we built a ramp and had a long tarp, what we could do is we would cover it in soap. And if you hit it long enough, you would launch off in this ramp all the way into the deep end. And it was amazing. Now, as any good leader does, I went first. And so we, we, we built this ramp, me and Parker. And as we've built it, and we put, the, we put the tarp on it. And as we put the tarp on it, we doused it with Dawn soap. And I mean, I hit it. I run down the hill, hit it, slide. And I mean, I launch. And I still buried my shoulder into some gravel. But I thought it was fine for kids. <laughs> so, so what's funny is this. We, this was a three-day like little camp we were doing. And so I had gone off the ramp. And the first day we were there... We had probably 60 kids go off this ramp just launching into the pond, launching into the lake, launching into the lake, launch. And I was like, every time I'm like, man, this was a sick idea. The second day, the very first person was a middle school guy, a middle school boy who was a little, um, he was a little heavier. And so he was running, but he was going pretty slow. And I remember watching him and I'm like, man, I hope he doesn't dive on that because he does not have enough speed. He's not hitting it at the right spot. And this could be dangerous. And so he, he jumps on. And as he's coming down the slope, he's coming down really slow to the point he's going so slow down the ramp that all he needed to do was just like roll off it. And he would have been fine. The only problem is he was committed. So he rolls, he's coming down the slide, he's coming down, he hits the ramp, and you guys know, if you're going slow and you hit a ramp, you get going slower. Well, it's a four-foot drop straight down on your face. This kid comes down the ramp, goes up, and I mean, barely makes it over the top, could have rolled off, and what does he do? Face plant scorpion. Face plant scorpion. And I remember, I'm just, I watched the whole thing, and I'm like, dude, why did you... There were no girls watching. You didn't need to do that. It's like middle school boys, it's always that. It's like in high school, in college, (laughs) in Luke. Oh, Oh, that was insane. Oh, gosh. I mean, (laughs) 
breaks his collarbone. And the best part is, is like, it's one of those where I was raised my whole life. Like I broke my leg at two. My parents put me down, compound fracture, femur, laid me down, did not take me to the doctor for a few days where CPS had to interview him because they just thought I was just crying. I was in a body cast for 12 weeks. (laughs) My mom to this day feels terrible. I hope you're listening to this sometime, mom. (laughs) Right? So... So when this kid breaks his collarbone, I'm like, oh, he's probably fine. He's, he's a little whimpery, like, oh, man, I'm hurt. And I'm like, oh, like, let me give you a Gatorade. <laughs> like, and he like, he like, his, his like shoulders. Like, <laughs> like, oh, we got Capri Sun too. You want a Twinkie or a bag of chips? He's like, yeah, I'll take some chips. <laughs> like parents pick him up. They're like, oh, we're just going to go get it checked out. They're like, yeah, he, he broke his collarbone. <laughs> I was like, well, no more slides anymore, I guess. But the reason I tell you that the reason I tell you that is because there was a certain speed and you had to hit the slide a certain way to make sure that you could actually enjoy the benefits. There was a basic level of engagement on this slide that if you didn't hit that basic level, then it was going to be painful. And what I want to ask you today is how many of us, right, we want the enjoyment of the fulfillment in Christ, but we don't want to do the bare basic minimum of following him until now what he's doing is we've confronted lordship. We've said, God, you're Lord of everything. And what he does is he comes into our heart and he starts removing the other lords. And it's painful. And what's sad is I see it all the time where people, we want to profess Jesus is king, but then the king comes into the castle and he kicks everything else out. And we wonder why our life's chaos. We want it. Lord, I profess lordship. Yes, God, you are Lord of everything. And he comes in and he's like, well, am I Lord over that addiction? Am I Lord over that mental stronghold? Am I Lord over your self-image? Am I Lord over your depression and your anxiety? I'm not discounting or discrediting anything. But what happens with Lordship is rhythmic practice develops a relationship that reaches a threshold where you understand why you're feeling the things you're feeling. But you also experience a goodness and a peace you never thought you could. And what I'm saying to you today is this for a lot of us. We want to be born of God, but in some places we're actively, deliberately, and habitually sinning, thinking that it's not going to affect us. Oh, it absolutely does. You know what's interesting about Genesis 3 when man fell the first time sin was introduced? What did it produce? Shame, covering, and distance. If you don't think your sin is producing that, then you are misguided. Shame produces distance covering. And I want to encourage you today that your walk with Christ was created for proximation. And from that proximation, a power and a peace that sustains you in this world. Maybe the reason that you're not feeling the power and the peace is because you haven't sacrificed what's needed to get proximate. The second thing is this. The enemy wants to get you so mad at the world that you forget you're called to change it. 
Being mad at a fallen world for being fallen is just us becoming more aware that we Christians haven't taken the Great Commission serious enough. I challenge you today not to be mad at a fallen world, but be challenged to be the light in the darkness that we have been too busy being opposed to rather than fighting for. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You can leave that point up there, right? But listen to this, right? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does that mean? I, what is so sad to me is that when Christians have such a divisive spirit, we're mad at a fallen world for being fallen. Why don't you serve God? Because they don't. Why doesn't everybody have biblical values? Because they don't. I, I mean, it is so frustrating to me when I get around Christians and all they want to claim, complain about is, man, do you know how dark the world is? Yeah. <laughs> man, do you know how wicked everything is? Yeah. Let's talk about it or be invited into it. Because, man, I think a lot of us, we'd rather talk about how dark it is than actually be invited into bringing light into the darkness. And as sad as it is today, we can come up with every excuse why we shouldn't be the light in the darkness. And man, that world is dark, man. It's bad out there. It's like, yeah, but you're called to be the thing that bridges that. See, John, I love this because he's reminding, hey, guess what? The world is ruled by the devil. You're in it. You're in it. You know, Romans 12, 2, it's a famous passage. I'm going to read it. Like I said, Ethan, you don't have to throw this up there. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what renewing of your mind that term is in the Greek, specifically in the Greek lexicon, is it's the same root word as metamorphosis. What does that mean? Metamorphosis, when the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. When he's saying, be in the world, but renew yourself with the mind of Christ, what he's saying is, conceal yourself in a way where you are transformed and changed into a new creation. How many of us, right, when we think about this, it's like, okay, I'm in the world, but we haven't actually been in a place of growth and new creation, and we're a caterpillar wondering why we're not a butterfly, and I want to say this to you as I, as I quoted that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, a lot of it is we're mad at the world for trying to change us instead of realizing that the world will always try to change us. That's the whole nature of a fallen world. You can't be mad at the fallenness for acting fallen. What you should be mad about is that you haven't taken ownership of yourself enough to change your viewpoint of a fallen world, not being an obstacle, but being an opportunity. And as sad as it is, the church, man, we just, I am so sick and tired of hearing every person, every pastor talk about the dark and, oh, the, the, the world, the world, the world. Man, let's talk about the risen Savior and the resurrection power. Let's talk about the victory. Let's talk about the metamorphosis needed that a changed life brings. You want to be a changed life person and walk in this world? I'll tell you this, you'll get people's attention. Because when you live in light and you walk in dark, people take notice. You know what's sad to me? I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. It's so sad to me when we are so mad at darkness that we turn off our own light. How many of us have been in a room 
and we're mad because somebody put a, uh, my, I was just in my parents and I was thinking about this. They had like 16 nightlights in my room. Because even the smallest light in the dead of dark is distracting. Is your light distracting the darkness? I'm going to tell you this. My light distracts darkness. Our church is going to distract darkness. We're not going to be mad at darkness. We're not going to label darkness. We're going to recognize the opportunity to be light. And the last point is this. Idolatry all comes down to truth. Do you believe biblical truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth and the conviction of the Spirit's leading in your heart, the truth you're a child of God? The list is endless. Or have you believed half-truths that influence the full truth of the gospel and has stripped a submitted life of Christ of its power and instead started a new battleground of logic and reason? You must know God's truth is your truth so your truth doesn't try to rewrite God's. You know what? I'm going to say this. I believe deconstruction is healthy. Deconversion, on the other hand, I don't believe that's healthy. But deconstruction in which God has to come, not man, not any outside sources, but God has to come and touch every area of the doubt and unbelief you possess to refine it and reform it and forge you in his image. See, in this day and age, if we try to, everything has an agenda, everything has an algorithm attached, everything has a political party to it. What does it look like for God to touch every fiber of your belief system and functionality? I would call that light. And I want to read this. I wrote this last night. I believe the truth being questioned has brought out the best and the worst of humanity today. Truth that produced hideous and heinous secrets that exposed and were brought to the light. Unhealthy and toxic power that were then exposed and overthrown. Institutions of status and privilege that have been exposed for corruption and remade in a healthy manner. Truth has been good. But I also believe truth has been extremely harmful. There is no longer biblical truth, only what a denomination believes or that person's viewpoint. Everyone's take is diluted by a different real TikToker or YouTube channel that contradicts what you believed or who you believe. There are very few who have dug the wells needed today for themselves to bring forth a water of revelation and peace. There are key differences between man's truth and God's. Man's truth is fear-based, anxiety-inducing, isolating, and divisive in nature. God's truth that brings conviction and in lived out, and if lived out, obedience produces a confident peace, trust, and rest in Him as the one who is in control, the author and the finisher, the beginning and the end, the one whose hand steadies the earth's pillars, who when He opens His hand satisfies the hunger and thirst of every living thing, the one who Clothes and feeds the birds, and how much so a life of commitment to his will and spirit will he clothe and protect you? God's truth has reigned over man since the beginning of the cosmos. We must become his likeness. We argue about truth all day, 
But I'm going to say this, the truth that I allow into my life is truth that you can tell has been disciplined in the presence of God by the word of God. I want to say this today. Some of us, we've allowed truth in that you cannot see a track record of faithfulness and discipline. You see a, a, a submission to an ideology or a certain way of thinking, but faithfulness, discipline, and an awareness of the presence of the living God. This is the truth and the word that I allow in. Don't come at me with truth if you don't have the habits, patterns, and lifestyle necessary to have a revelation knowledge that speaks. There's a big difference between human knowledge and a knowledge that has been steeped. In God. Steeped. You know, when you steep tea in warm water, there's a time limit, but how many of us know if you just put that tea bag in for 10 seconds, you don't taste much? 30 seconds, you don't taste much. It's a steeping and a sitting that the flavor is changed. I challenge you today to steep yourself in the word of God, the presence of God, the conviction of God, the obedience of God, the rhythmic lifestyle and disciplines of being a follower of God that rewrites your truth, that redefines what you allow into who you are and what you profess, and that you would stay away from idols. Stand to your feet. every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just going to have a moment. This morning, typically I read um, just a prayer over every person, but as we go into worship, I recently have just, and by recently, the last year I would say is I've just been challenged to pray as Jesus prayed. That is, it talks about Jesus, his disciples asked him, how should we pray? And then he gives the Lord's prayer as like this, this sacrament of communion. That now, how do we model that? And as a church body, I've just been profoundly impacted by, the, by us praying the Lord's Prayer together. So this morning, if you know it, I pray that you would recite it with me as we go into worship. If you don't know it, I pray that you would steep in it. And that as we worship in closing as a community this morning, that we would know why and what we know from the presence of God. So with that, our Father, who art in heaven,